CrimeWire, a program dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved crimes and educating the public about various types of crimes and how to avoid becoming a victim. My name is Denny Griffin, and on today's show, my co-host Delilah Jones and I will be discussing what I called uh, Murder in Lakemore. It's a double homicide case from 1981. And before I introduce our guest, I'm going to read a synopsis of what happened in Lakemore. On the morning of June 2nd, 1981, two people were found shot to death in the living room of an apartment at the rear of the PM Pub, located at 258 West excuse me, West Rand Road in Lakemore, Illinois. The victims were the tavern's owner, 37-year-old Ronald Sharp, and barmaid Patricia Freeman, who had worked her first shift at the bar the previous evening. Lakemore was a community of around 800 at the time and is situated about 45 miles northwest of Chicago. These were the first reported homicides there since its incorporation in 1952. Shortly after the killings, McHenry County Sheriff's investigators had a couple of suspects in the slains. Jim Hager, a friend of Ron Sharp, advised them that if they wanted to solve the murders, they should look at either Freeman's boyfriend or a guy named Larry Newman. The latter was a McHenry County native then living in Las Vegas. Newman, a burglar, robber, arsonist, and all-around tough guy, was working for Chicago Outfit Enforcer Tony Spilatro in Sin City. Newman had previously been convicted of a 1956 triple murder in Illinois, and although he received a sentence of 125 years, he had miraculously been paroled after serving only about 16 years. Hagler had thrown Newman's name into the mix because he had witnessed an altercation between Sharp and Newman's ex-wife in which Scharf threw the woman out of his bar. Hager said that to a guy like Newman, that incident could be construed to be a personal insult demanding redress. It is unclear exactly what the police did with that information, but they reportedly put most of their focus on Freeman's boyfriend, who had allegedly been seen across the street from the lounge on the night of the killings. The man was questioned submitted to several lie detector tests, the results of which were inconclusive. At any rate, no charges were filed, and the case was still open the following year when what seemed like a major breakthrough with the Las Vegas connection took place. In May 1982, Tony Spilatro's childhood friend and lieutenant flipped and became a government witness. Frank Collado, who had been running Spilatro's crew of thieves and killers known as the Hole in the Wall gang prior to defecting, told the FBI agents and Las Vegas police who were debriefing him that Newman had killed two people in a McHenry County tavern the previous June. McHenry County authorities were notified and interviewed Collada at the federal lockup in San Diego. Collada confirmed Hager's suspicion of the motive for the murders. He stated that Newman had received a call from his ex-wife regarding her altercation with Ron Sharp. The killer had become enraged. He considered the incident to have been a sign of disrespect to him and felt he had no choice but to return to Illinois and get revenge. Not long afterward, Newman said he was heading for Chicago. Another Collada associate named Tommy Amato went with him. Amato went along to share the driving and get out of Vegas for a while. He had no knowledge of Newman's plans for retribution. 
When Newman returned to Vegas, he admitted the murders to Collada. In addition to Collada's statement, a Las Vegas police detective provided details of an interview he did with Tommy Amato regarding the Sharp and Freeman murders. Detective David Gruber said Amato told him he had driven Newman from Chicago to Lakemore and Newman's Thunderbird. Newman told Amato to park near the pub and wait for him in the car. A few minutes later, Amato heard two gunshots, followed seconds later by two more. Newman returned to the car and after driving around for a while, threw the murder weapon into a lake. Although Amato later retracted his story, Groover memorialized Amato's statement in a sworn affidavit. Further information that seemingly corroborated the accounts of Collada and Amato was contained in McHenry County Police records. Through the killings, Tommy Amato was in a car operated by Newman's brother-in-law when it was stopped by a police patrol. Amato was detained briefly and then released. In spite of all this information, Newman was not charged and the murders remained unsolved. In 2008, 27 years after his father's murder, Paul Scharf received a phone call from Jim Hager. He was told that Holly Hager, Jim's daughter and Paul's one-time babysitter, had read a book that she believed included a segment on Ron Scharf's killing. Although the names of the victims were the specific location of the crimes were not included, she felt everything else matched. Jim agreed and reached out to Paul. The book Holly read was Collada, The Life of a Chicago Criminal, Las Vegas Mobster, and Government Witness. On page 130 of that book, she found Collada's account of what turned out to be the Ron Sheriff murder. For Paul, who was a young boy in 1981, this was the first time he heard the story about Larry Newman being his father's killer. After talking with Jim Hager and reading the book for himself, Paul was convinced Newman was the man who took the lives of his father and Pat Freeman. That acceptance has brought him a certain amount of closure. But now he'd like the police to name Newman, who died in prison in January 2007, as the perpetrator and close out the cold case. He'd also like an explanation as to why the police seemingly never seriously went after Newman all those years ago. Frank Collada and his former FBI handler, Dennis Arnley, have agreed to assist Paul in his efforts if needed. For the sake of Paul and his family, I hope his efforts are successful. And that brings us up to tonight and our guest, Mr. Paul Scharf. Paul, welcome back to CrimeWire. Hi, Danny. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's been a while since we since we first did the story of your father and, and Pat Freeman's uh, murders. And I know there's been an awful lot that's happened since then. So what uh, I'd like you to do, if you would, is, is kind of tell us and the listeners uh, what transpired after you found out about Larry Newman and, and read Frank's book. Sure, sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, we've been talking about this for a long while. Um, the first time that we told this story was uh, predating uh, Crime Wire. This is uh, your show, Las Vegas and the Mob, uh, in November of 2008. And uh, what you read to everybody um, was a lot of information that I didn't know about um, until 2008. So on June 2nd, 1981, uh, my father was gunned down in our bar. And for uh, 27 years, it remained a cold case. 
Um, we were given a suspect of a gentleman named Glenn, who was Patricia Freeman's boyfriend, and um, that was the best suspect that we had. Um, and so Holly, uh, my former babysitter, was taking her dad, Jim, back home from uh, Illinois back to Arkansas, and um, she asked him, so who do you think killed Ron? And he mentioned Glenn, and then he also mentioned Larry Newman. So when Holly got back home to Illinois, she started Googling Larry Newman. And the first uh, site that she finds is a serial killer site. And it says Larry's on there, and he's from McHenry, and that's where we're from. Uh, so she kept on Googling a little further, and then she came across Collada, um, uh, Frank Collada's biography. Um, and on page 130 of that book, um, describes the murder of uh, my father and Patricia Freeman. So that information was forwarded on to me from Holly and uh, her father, Jim, and um, and that's when I reached out to the co-author of Frank Collada's book, you, Benny Griffin, and, um, and I sent you an email through um, your publisher's uh, PR man uh, letting you know that, hey, we've got a double homicide that's unsolved in your book. Um, and, um, and that's when you uh, replied back, uh, and we, we talked and said that we were actually going to talk on the phone a week later. But then I received an email from you the very next day saying, hey, I talked to Frank Collada. I also talked to Dennis Arnoldy, who is Frank Collada's uh, debriefer when Frank Collada turned government witness. And I asked them why they didn't pass on this information to McHenry County, and they said that they did. Um, so right there is when I knew that we had something to go ahead and, and pursue. So what my goal became right at that moment with your help, Frank's help, and uh, Mr. Arnoldy's help is to go ahead and get Larry Newman named as the killer of my father, um, which, you know, at that time, uh, uh, this is 2008, uh, September, October time frame, um, Larry Newman had already died in prison in January of 2007, uh, a little over a year earlier. Um, and he was put away for the murder of Robert Brown um, based on testimony that was provided by Frank Collada. And um, so the McHenry County uh, uh, Sheriff's Department picked up the investigation, um, and I, um, I didn't trust them. I, I, I knew my community. I knew my community well. I knew the McHenry County Sheriff's Office, and I didn't think that they were any good. Um, and I had no reason to believe that this administration was really going to be any different than the first administration that decided not to bring Larry Newman in as a suspect uh, for the murder of my father because, uh, A, like you mentioned, he was already convicted uh, of a triple murder that he did in 1956. He was to get 125 years per person for that triple murder, and um, he, he wound up only having to serve 12 years. And, uh, and we believe the reason for that is that um, – uh, Larry's father was a, a wealthy man, and uh, this, of course, was in Illinois. So we believe that there were some behind-the-scenes things that happened that let Larry go. Uh, so the fact that he was never questioned, and he was a friend of my father's who uh, was at the bar, 
uh, it, it just it's it's hard to imagine why he wasn't. Um, well, what we've learned is that uh, the Chicago outfit was connected to the McHenry County Sheriff's Office. The investigator at that time was George Hendel, who later became Sheriff Hendel. Um, uh, they were connected. And the reason why the Chicago outfit didn't want this case to go forward was it would have um, it would have made Frank Collada credible. And uh, if, if the information that Frank provided got Larry Newman convicted of the murder of my father and Patricia Freeman, that would have put one under Frank, and then there would have been many more cases that the Chicago outfit was going to have to contend with involving Frank Collada. Um, so this is why we believe that the case went unsolved for so many years. Um, so, yeah. I just want to, uh, you said something a few seconds ago that I think is, is worth uh, stressing. Uh, you know, a lot of times you'll hear about criminals and you hear that, well, the reason this guy was a criminal was, you know, he had to grow up stealing to survive. There was never any food on the table. There was They couldn't pay their bills, blah, blah, blah. So, this, you know, the guy was a victim of his environment. He wasn't really a bad guy. It was just bad circumstances that drove him sure. to a life of crime. And you mentioned that, that was not the case with Larry Newman. His father was, in fact, a, a pretty wealthy man. And um, Larry Newman didn't steal and kill because he had to do it to survive. He did it because he enjoyed it. That That, that is correct. Uh, when uh, Newman got out of prison, um, he was set up with a trust fund uh, by his father. He was receiving every um, every three months, he was receiving um, $7,500. So uh, that's a total for $30,000 a year. Now, back in the 60s, that's some pretty good coin. You can definitely go ahead and make a living off of $30,000 a year um, and really not sweat it. Have have the the house, you know, the white picket fence, uh, the wife, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but that that wasn't Larry Newman. Larry Newman was really a terrible person that really liked to hurt and 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 um, kill. And um, you know, and he, he, that's been his history. Um, going back, uh, the first newspaper article I could find on Larry Newman was when he was in California. Um, working as a, a longshoreman on the dock there. He, I believe, I think he was 21 at the time, and um, he pulled a knife out on his boss. Um, and, you know, and, and, and things would only to progress from there. A few years later, um, he can, uh, killed those three people that we were talking about. That was um, the bar, bar owner, um, uh, one of the workers at the bar, and um, a newspaper vendor right outside the bar. Um, and, uh, I mean, he went out on the lamb on that. They had to chase him down. There was a false sighting at, at a, a, a Chicago movie theater. The people found out about it. Um, I think it was something like 3,000 or 8,000 people converged onto that theater, hoping to grab Larry Newman and, and kill him. I mean, because this was uh, national news. They were calling him the grudge slayer. Um, and then uh, finally they uh, did pick him up um, about a month and a half, two months later. 
Um, and then, of course, he went to court, got 125 years, and then later did 12. Um, and, and while he was serving that time, um, that's where he met up with Frank uh, Collada, who was also doing time. And that's where Larry Newman got connected to the Chicago outfit. And, Paul, it, it, you you mentioned, uh, you know, you're talking about the, the rather odd uh, situation with Newman getting parole after serving only a, a short portion of his sentences. Uh, now, we know for sure that three people died after after he was released. That's uh, your father, Patricia Freeman, and Bob Brown, the the jeweler. Uh, there could have been others, but those we know for sure. So I, I guess it, it just seems uh, inexplicable to me that a triple murderer and, and murdered under the uh, conditions when he killed these three people, the two in the bar and the newspaper vendor outside the bar, that that he could get paroled. I mean, I, I, I still can't get my head around that fact and and probably had this odd oddity not happened and he had done at least more of his time. I don't think he ever should have got paroled, but uh, right. that, it, it, you know, those three people, your, your dad, Patricia Freeman and Bob Brown might still be alive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he, under, um, anybody's uh, belief system on redemption, um, I don't think Larry Newman, in the most liberal sense of redemption, would fall on anybody's radar. Um, He was a terrible man. He was a rotten man. Um, It was something in his DNA. I mean, he he liked to hurt and kill. Um, That's who he was. And... um, once they had him in prison, they should have kept him there. They should have never let him out. He was a very dangerous man. Uh, so dangerous that, uh, you know, he scared everybody. He, he scared the mob guys as well as the cops. Um, any, anybody that has run across them, um, they've always mentioned to me that Larry Newman always put a little bit of fear into him, at the very least. And the people that I've talked to, they're not timid people. Like I said, they're gangsters, cops. Uh, they've been around the block. Uh, but Larry Newman was, a, you know, kind of a gangster of gangsters. Certainly not a redeemable person. <laughs> By any stretch. By any stretch okay, of I didn't mean to, uh, to interrupt the story, but I just couldn't help addressing Newman a little bit because he certainly is a... Uh, a character that that people need to understand what he was, right? You know, and and, and and to really understand the heinousness of the first investigator, George Handel. Um, you know, why didn't he bring him in? Well, uh, you know, he was either negligent, um, arrogant, or on the take. Um, but if you go ahead and do your math in that problem. You know, he was on the take, and I was able to go ahead and trace paperwork later um, that points more in in that direction. Uh, But uh, Larry Newman, uh, he was was questioned as a witness um, about my father's murder, and in his witness statement, he actually implicated himself. Um, He 
uh, told the officer that he was speaking to that he heard that somebody was spreading a rumor that um, he put a contract out on Rod um, and that he was the one that did it. And, um, you, you, you know, you think between knowing who Larry Newman is, and there's not a doubt in my military mind, you know, we didn't have the Internet and stuff back then, um, but, you know, there's uh, any, any crime commission, Las Vegas Metro, FBI, you ask anybody, they knew who Larry Newman was. Plus, he also had his record as being a, a, a triple uh, convicted killer. Um, and, you know, and uh, the, the previous uh, people he killed was uh, Mickey Epstein, a bar owner, um, or, I'm sorry, Mac Epstein, uh, a bar owner, uh, Lois Gates, a dice girl at the bar, and um, John Keller, a newspaper vendor. Well, my father's Ron Sharp, the bar owner. And Patricia Freeman is um, a bar employee. Um, and he was disrespected in that instance. Uh, the first instance of the triple murder, um, that was over uh, being, he felt like he was shorted some change, uh, less than $2 worth of change, and got into a fight with Mickey and Max Epstein, the owners of the bar. And, um, and he, uh, a couple weeks after that incident, went back and killed him in cold blood. Um, and in the instance of my father, um, Debbie Newman was, uh, Larry's ex-wife. She was at the bar. She was getting drunk. She was acting belligerent. She was hitting on my father. And, um, so my dad threw her out. And so she called Larry in Las Vegas, um, at the Upper Crust, which was Frank Collada's restaurant, um, and, uh, told Larry that my father grabbed her by the neck and threw her out of the bar. Um, so Larry felt definitely disrespected, and that's that's what Larry does when he feels disrespected. He murders and kills. So, well, it's really an amazing story, and I think you tell us. You actually wrote a book about this after all of this leading up to what what you're talking about that came from Denny's book. You actually wrote a book and went into even further detail. Right, right. Um, Because, uh, you know, this is uh, the whole thing was really so out of bounds with, with everything that it's hard to believe that this all really happened. You know, and to kind of give more of a background on who Frank Collada is, um, if anybody's ever seen the movie Casino, um, Casino was, uh, um, in the movie Casino, Joe Pesci played this guy named Nicky Santoro. But Nicky Santoro was based on the uh, the actual real-life Tony Spilatro, who was uh, a Chicago outfit enforcer who was sent out to Las Vegas to go ahead and protect the skim. And and Frank was there with his gang, the Hole in the Wall gang, to um, help Tony uh, Spilatro out with this. And in some of the things that I was uncovering, um, there was a, you know, um, because back in May of 1982, uh, Frank was a government witness in San Diego. Um, uh, George Hendel and McHenry County State's Attorney Ted Floro flew out to San Diego and spoke to Frank and, and Dennis Arnoldy. And um, they walked away very unconvinced by the information. And what was strange after that 
No, this was this was a meeting with the government. <coughs> uh, excuse me. <coughs> with the government witness that nobody knew about, and and these gentlemen were to go see that see him in confidence, and there was no charges that came out of this. Um, so it should have been something that was never talked about. But what wound up happening is um, there was a newspaper article written where um, a gentleman named Adam Bourgeois was interviewed. Adam Bourgeois is the Chicago Outfits attorney. And in this article, um, they stated that um, they set Frank up with questions um, that weren't true, and he would validate uh, validate the false information. Um, They went in to say that um, they had three lie detector tests on Glenn, so they got the right guy, you know, and the, and the truth of it is um, none of the information uh, that Frank provided them was false. All of it was very accurate. Um, the lie detector test that proved it was Glenn, the first lie detector test was inconclusive, and they stated that it was given close um, after he learned um, his girlfriend was killed. The second, um, uh, excuse me, I'm, I'm getting over a cold, so excuse me, I'm trying to get through this. Uh, the second uh, lie detector test that he was given proved that he was misleading. So then the third uh, lie detector test that he was given proved that he was being truthful. So you had an inconclusive, a positive, and a negative. None of these things are positive, you know. And um, and Anna Bourgeois was even going as far as saying that he was going to use George Hendel as um, in Larry Newman's murder case uh, with the Robert Brown. And he was going to use George Hendel, the investigator of my father's case, as, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, to, to validate that Larry wasn't this, this guy. And, um, and and it's just amazing that they're going to use the investigator that's supposed to be naming Larry Newman as the killer of my father. He's actually going to go to uh, another murder trial for this triple convicted murderer and testify that he's a good guy. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and it's crazy. And, and later I found a subpoena that George Hendel was actually given to go ahead and testify in Tony Spilatro's case um, about Bertha's. You know, that actually did happen. And and because of that, the FBI, uh, this was in 1986, the FBI questioned George Hendel about all the information in that newspaper article. And he recanted on everything. Um so it, it, it was, it was, the whole thing was just a big setup. It was really incredible. It was definitely all on the take. And, uh, you know, and this was what was going on in my father's case. And um, so ultimately we were successful in getting Larry Newman named as the killer of my father. Um, the second investigators said uh, that uh, – he is the killer of my father under what they call exceptional status. And that is uh, exceptional status is if the person who uh, they would convict is no longer alive or the person that they would convict um, 
was already, uh, you know, serving so many years for so many cases, you know, like a serial killer or something like that, um, that it wouldn't make sense, you know, to go ahead and bring him to trial. So Larry Newman was already dead. So we named Larry Newman uh, as the killer of my father uh, uh, under exceptional status. So that was the one win that we got, but they would not go back and ask, well, what was going on with George Hendel and who else was involved in this stuff? So that's when um, uh, I started writing my book about everything that happened. And um, in doing so, uh, me and my co-author, Keith Bettinger, um, filed uh, a Freedom of Information Act requesting my father's file. And um, they not only wouldn't give it to us, but they were very rude in, in, in shutting us down, not once but twice. So what I was going to do was go ahead, write my book, and um, and I was going to go and, uh, and, and, and pressure uh, the second investigator, Andrew Zanke, um, with, with my book. Uh, it turns out that... Um, uh, Lieutenant Zanke eventually picked up under sheriff, and now he was going to be elected uh, sheriff. And I wasn't comfortable with that at all. Uh, Zanke wasn't a good investigator. He was terrible to me. Um, he wouldn't. He wouldn't return my phone calls. Um, I had to go ahead and call Channel Five News. Uh, to let them know that he wasn't returning my phone calls, and then they would call him, and then he would call me. I mean, it was awful. And it definitely seemed like um, we're still hiding something here because uh, all the information that they provided to me about my uh, my father's murder, uh, I, I already got from you and Frank Collada reading the book Collada. They provided me no new information. So I knew something was wrong, and it was my belief that the there were still people around from the first investigation that were friends with the current sheriff, Sheriff Keith Knight. Um, so I, I went ahead and I released my book, and um, and I filed for the Freedom of Information Act uh, again for my father's case. Um, they must have read my mind because they gave me most of the material. And there was a lot of stuff in there, um, a lot of stuff that made you that would have made you bring in George Handel and anybody associated with him. And, um, uh, and there would have definitely been uh, another case here brought forward with that. Um, so I started campaigning uh, against Andrew Zanke uh, from becoming sheriff. I started my blog site up again. I started writing articles. And I had all different kinds of people reaching out to me, asking me that I should reach out to these other deputies, uh, Zane Zeppler and Scott Millman. And, you know, on the one side, I was like, you know, folks, I don't have time to be reaching out to all these people. I'm, I'm running a double homicide over here. I got a blog site. I got a book to go ahead and promote. I'm a real kind of busy guy. But what they were keying me in on some, was some pretty insightful information about what was currently going on in McHenry County. And uh, what was going on is uh, Zane Suppler was a, a deputy, and um, Zane uh, went to his commanders stating that, hey, everybody on the force here at the, uh, at the sheriff's office 
I was profiling Hispanic people. And he was ignored and then ignored and ignored. And he went to the FBI about it. Um, so that led to uh, Zane getting fired. And so Zane started a wrongful termination case. And when he started doing his wrongful termination case, um, he did, uh, was doing uh, disposing of a second deputy, uh, a deputy named Scott Millman. Well, he wasn't expecting good things from Scott Millman uh, because Scott Millman was actually Sheriff Nygren's bag man. Yeah, Sheriff Nygren's bag man um, and uh, enforcer at times. And um, what what happened in that deposition was uh, phenomenal. Turned out that Scott Millman was wearing a wire. And he was trying to get Sheriff Nygren and a whole bunch of other people. And so what he wound up going on record with is uh, that the sheriff asked him to put a hit out on a coroner's candidate, uh, put a hit out on a judge, um, that they were running uh, illegals and drugs from Mexico, every county. There was a, a legal horse track, um, there was children chained up in foster care. <coughs> Excuse me. It, it was unbelievable of what testimony Scott Millman provided. So this kind of gave me a backdrop of what was going on with with the McHenry County Sheriff's Department. Were you were you surprised to hear all this, Paul, or did you kind of? Was it wasn't based on your previous knowledge of what they were like? Was it not so surprising? Well, you know, it it, it, it was it was shocking. I mean, that that kind of stuff is just shocking. But after you take it in initially, no, it it, it made a lot of sense. Um, and so uh, this stuff started giving me material to educate people on about McHenry County. So this information started winding up in my blog, stories about this, um, about Sheriff Nygren and, and Under Sheriff Sankey. You know, and, uh, and Under Sheriff Sankey, he wasn't helping himself either. He got put into a situation to where um, a deputy came to him and told him about a DEA investigation. Um, the DEA investigation um, uh, that they were working on involved uh, the Rita Corporation. The Rita Corporation is owned by Brian Good. Brian Good is uh, sits on the merit board for the McHenry County Sheriff's Office and is good friends with uh, Andrew Zanke. And <laughs> it turns out that um, the investigators were following shipments, uh, truck shipments of marijuana from Texas back to the Rita Corporation. And the address that they were uh, looking at happened to be the same address as Zanke's campaign headquarters over at the Rita Corporation. (laughs) So he winds up telling Brian Good that there's an investigation. And, uh, of course, the uh, deputy that, told him that information, he he lost it. That became a thing. 
And it turns out that actually was not illegal, believe it or not. Um, but it certainly got into the public's uh, eyes and ears questioning Sankey's judgment on, you know, what kind of what kind of guy is he? You know, you got a big uh, investigation going on between the McKinney County Sheriff's Office and a federal agency, the DEA, and you go and tell the guy that, you know, I, who, who may have been a suspect, he may not have been a suspect, don't really know, but the point is you don't, you don't tell him that there's an investigation surrounding his company. You know, that wasn't his job. Uh, but he, he, would, he would do stuff like that. And um, he, he, he wasn't that bright. He was one of the worst candidates I've ever seen running for anything. Um, he didn't even have the common sense at the 4th of July parade. Um, he saw this gentleman named Cal Skinner. Cal Skinner, he runs the largest um, uh, political blog in the state of Illinois, the McHenry County blog. And, um, and, and Cal is really not a fan of uh, what I coined the regime. Uh, the regime is, it's not just the sheriff. You know, there's a whole system in place. There was the sheriff, the undersheriff, uh, other deputies. There was attorneys that worked in the courthouses. There was a couple judges. Uh, the Northwest Herald, they, you could probably call them regime players. So there was a system of corruption that was going on for years uh, in McHenry County, um, probably more like decades Possibly, I was tracing things all all the way back almost a hundred years on <laughs> what's wrong with McHenry County, and uh, so you know, uh, so he knows Cal, and, and, and frankly, Cal does a political website. He goes to all the events. He takes pictures of friends and foes, and um, you know, but thank you, he wasn't smart enough uh, to just smile and look at the camera and just go on with his business. He decided to flip the camera off. So Cal got a picture of that. That got all the way to the Chicago Tribune. And so you have this undersheriff who's running for sheriff, who's flipping people off in a McHenry County Sheriff's vehicle in uniform at a Fourth of July parade. You know, <laughs> so this guy was his own worst enemy. He made my job really, really easy. Um, so my, my objective was to go on the attack and let people know this is the kind of folks that we got in this office, and this is why you got to pay attention, because the stuff that I'm talking about is serious. we got, we got connections to uh, the uh, uh, drug cartel, Mexican cartel. Uh, we have, uh, we're, we're putting hits out on corner candidates and, and a judge. I mean, this is some serious stuff. And um, so my objective was to uh, report on Andrew Zanke and his regime and what those people were about. But I wasn't planning on supporting anybody um, because it's McHenry County. I I felt like um, I I would have been just putting another corrupt guy in place of these corrupt guys. Um, But what wound up happening is after the release of my book – I got a lot of support from the McHenry County Sheriff's Office. And I was like, man, I can't believe all these deputies are supporting me. And then I had to think about it for a minute. It's like, look, 
you don't like dealing with Zanke, and you only deal with them if you decide to call them. These guys, they go work for them. That's ten times worse than what you got going on. So that's why all these deputies were supporting me. And they kept on mentioning Bill Prim, Bill Prim. Well, Bill Prim was the other Republican uh, running against Zanke for the Republican nomination for the sheriffs. So it really was, the sheriff's race really was the Republican nomination. And um, and so I reached out to Bill Prim. I got to know him and, uh, and believe that he was going to make a really good sheriff. Um, and he was an outsider of the regime, um, but he wasn't an outsider of McHenry County. He, he was a resident of Cary for over 20 years. Um, and he was also the commander, uh, 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 vice commander at the uh, Desplaines uh, Police Department, which is the uh, Desplaines Police Department's a very large uh, law enforcement operation out there. Um, so I was confident in, in Bill Prim. And uh, so I started writing articles uh, that would go out every week. And the articles would be on what's going on in McHenry County. Or what I would do is um, I learned a lot about the Chicago outfit. So maybe I would write about the Chicago outfit fixers and, uh, and talk about their political fixers. And, you know, and put these guys um, in the suits and ties in, in assembly uh, uh, councils and, 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 uh, and, and things like that um, so that my next week's story, when I had people in suit and ties from McHenry County in their assemblies and, and whatnot, that they can start drawing parallels to it because the Chicago outfit in the way it was ran is exactly the way McHenry County was ran. Um, it, it had all the same pieces to it. It had enforcers. It had political fixers. Um, it had judges, lawyers, all the same things that made the Chicago outfit the Chicago outfit. Um, and so I, I told stories about that, educating folks, and um, and, 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 and campaigned for Bill Prim, uh, which ultimately in March uh, we beat Andrew Sankey by like 97 votes, I think it was. <laughs> so it was a real close call. And uh, and the Chicago Tribune picked up on uh, what we were doing. Uh, I mentioned the other political blog, uh, the McKenna County blog. There was two other uh, uh, similar types of political blogs. And then there was me that was just, just hammering at these guys uh, about who they really were. And uh, so the Tribune picked up on that. And when they interviewed uh, Bill Pram and McKenna County State's attorney, Lou Bianchi, uh, you know, they asked them, do you, do you think the bloggers had an effect on the election? And, you know, absolutely. You know, the, the truth of it is, this is a grassroots operation. If anybody let off the gas, we were going to be in trouble because we only won this by 97 votes. Wow. Well, let me uh, let me ask you this, Paul. You know what we've forgotten to do? We mentioned your book, but we never mentioned the title of it, and we're just about out of time. 
Would you uh, be so kind as to mention the name of your book, where it's available, and also any uh, website information or blog information if people want to do some more research? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the name of my book is Murder in the Country, um, and you can find that on uh, Amazon.com. Uh, we've got soft cover and uh, uh, Kindle for for that book. And then if you want to take a look at um, from the beginning, uh, back in uh, uh, 2008 uh, to where we are today, you can go to my website. Um, that website tells the whole story, everything I was doing and the articles I was talking about. Um, and the website is McHenryCounty1981.com. That's uh, McHenry, M-C-H-E-N-R-Y, County1981.com. And this certainly turned into quite an adventure for you, didn't it? It's been, now it's been going on for years. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. My, I, I still got some loose ends here that I gotta gotta tidy up with it. Um, you know, my mission was uh, my primary focus was honoring my father, and um, and uh, getting Larry Newman named uh, as the killer of my father was the biggest priority in in doing that. And um, you achieved that. Uh, we achieved that, and I want to thank you for that. Because without your help, Danny, um, I don't. I wouldn't have done all, all, any of this stuff. Um, so you know, the, the the viewers, the listeners right now should know that you were very critical in everything that that we did. Because I, I call. I had two campaigns. I had the campaign to lay, name Larry Newman as the killer of my father, and then I had my campaign to get rid of under sheriff Andrew Zanke. And you were my uh you were my buddy uh all the way on that first campaign. And everything that we did on that first campaign, which like I, I, I'm not sure if we knew what we were doing, but we just did everything right. <laughs> when it came to my second campaign, I knew exactly what what, what I was gonna do. And that's what we did on the first campaign. And I came on hard, and uh, and the people should know that you were instrumental in that. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Danny Griffin, for all the help that you gave me. Couldn't have done it without you, my friend. Oh, Paul, I'm just glad things worked out, and we got uh, you got some good victories on your belt here. So uh, absolutely, maybe not perfect, and like you say, there's some loose ends yet. But you accomplished an awful lot, and you deserve all the credit in the world for having the stamina and to stay with it and see things through because uh, a lot of people when they ran into the roadblocks that you did would have quit but you uh, you yeah. hung in there and overcame so my uh, my congratulations to you for your perseverance and effort well thank you i appreciate that now well, we're well, after all we have you have told us about and and everything that you've done since Came out. How do you feel to you and your family feel like they're just vindicated? Hmm. Well, you know that, that that kind of comes back. You know, some people, you know, ask me about um, did did you get closure? I'm glad you got closure, and you know, and that type of thing. You know, and, and quite frankly, I don't think that's even a thought in any of our minds. You know, because really what was critical for us was back in the 80s when this all happened to us, 
the complete victimization that occurred to myself and my family, you know, it, it, closure is a luxury. You know, what you want to do and what you had to do is get to the other side and become a survivor. And, you know, and when I came through my reliving my father's murder back in 2008, I came walking away thinking how fortunate I was um, to be a survivor. Because when this happened back in 1980s, I was like, I've got, I'm, I, I've got the worst life of a little boy than any other little boy in the entire world. And to relive it again, I'm like, you're the one of the luckiest guys I know. So really it was about surviving. And then the second part of this was, look, I got to go and square away some people, you know, because they did some wrong. They did some dirt, you know, and they did this to my father. And, um, and a lot of what I would do in my mind, I was asking myself, what would your father do if this happened to you? So really what I was doing was acting out my father in a case of if this would have happened to me. And this is how I thought my father would handle it. Well, you did a hell of a job. That's all I can say, Paul. And, uh, yeah, closure, maybe resolution sometimes is a little better word. But anyway, uh, yeah. I want to thank you so much for being back on the show with us and, uh, and you know, updating us on what's happened. So you got into a lot of stuff here. And like I say, God bless you for, for hanging in there and seeing it through to the end and what you've accomplished. And, if there's any more uh, twists or turns, please let us know. Yeah, hang in there. You never know. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you never know. Hey, Paul, thanks again, and uh, get over that cold, huh? I, I'm going to do my best. I've been fighting it for a week now. <laughs> Good luck, Paul. Thanks again. All right. Take Good care. Thanks you, for Paul. having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for listening to the show. We appreciate it, and uh, join us again, please, on the next installment of CrimeWire. Thank you. Stay safe, and good night.